0: This is the BBC.
1: Thanks for downloading this episode of In Our Time. There's a reading list to go with it on our website, and you can get news about our programmes if you follow us on Twitter at BBC In Our Time. I hope you enjoyed the programmes. Hello, the Highland Clearances were a notorious episode in British history that followed the failed Jacobite rebellion of 1745 and lasted for over a century. In the highlands and western islands of Scotland, landlords cleared their estates to make room for sheep farming, demolishing the old inland townships and moving the people to the coast to fish, to weave or to farm kelp for the estate. When those businesses failed, there were more forced evictions or very hard choices where landlords would cancel rent arrears only if their tenants then migrated to Canada, Australia or New Zealand. A great part of the population was left with no land and a deep sense of betrayal. With me to discuss the Highland Clearances are Marjorie Harper, Professor of History at the University of Aberdeen and Visiting Professor at the University of the Highlands and Islands, Murray Pittock, Bradley Professor of English Literature and Pro Vice Principal at the University of Glasgow, and Sir Tom Devine, Professor Emeritus of Scottish History at the University of Edinburgh. Tom Devine, what were the first signs of what became known as the Highland Clearances?
0: Well, you begin to see um, removals around about the from the 1760s onwards – It tends to move from the southern and eastern highlands, north, and then you have the cycle that you've just described in your introduction. First of all, the movement of people from the interior glens to the coastlands to work in the by-employments that you've described. But there's no attempt at all at this period by landlordism to uh, uh, expel people. In fact, they want to retain the labour force and are very anti-emigration during that particular period. And then those, those um, pursuits, like kelping, fishing, military employment and a whole range of others stagnates or collapses during the post Napoleonic War period. That then results in the beginnings, first of all, of eviction, but also expulsion. And then the whole thing reaches almost a kind of crescendo, an intensity of clearance in the 1840s and 1850s with the dreaded potato blight, which results in, either through voluntary or cleared emigration, about a quarter to a third of the population of the inner and outer Hebrides leaving between the censuses of 1841 and the census of
1: 1861. That's a terrific overview. Thank you very much for that. Now, what we have in the Highlands is the clan system, and unless we know something about the clan system, we're not going to get anywhere really important in this discussion. So can you tell us what it was and what it meant to the people who lived there?
0: It's a subject that's been completely shrouded in myth and exaggeration for many, many years. But modern scholarship is now trying to get to the hearts of it. It's not a it's not a a social structure which dates from antiquity. It actually evolves in the Middle Ages, and it's a method, or at least a social system, where people look to great men as protectors, in return um, for them providing service, um, rental, uh, and 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 the like. And it's over time, that practical rationale then becomes embedded with uh, loyalties, traditions, um, and so the, there's a, a strong bond builds up, which ensures that the type of org- that type of social organisation, the clan, which had already started to die out many, many years before and the rest of Scotland survives into the mid-18th century. And the basic reason why it does so is the state cannot for that over that period or for most of that period impose its will its rule, rule, rule of law and order in northern and western Scotland partly because of geography and so people continue to look to clan elites and clan gentry to play the role almost of semi kings semi monarchs
1: do are these clans in particular area is there a clan to the northwest, there's a clan up there, uh, around uh, in Skye. How many clans are there? Are they geographically based?
0: I mean, if you get to you know at the end of clanship, probably you would talk about in terms of major clans about fifty to sixty
1: That's
0: in the lot. in the 1750s, 1760s, and then you have subdivisions. And the whole thing about clanship is it was never frozen in ice; it was always evolving. So you begin to see some of the greater clans, the more them um, imperialistic. Such taking as? over confederations. Well, a classic example is um, in the medieval period, MacDonald, Clan Donald, especially Clan Donald South, and in the more modern period, Clan Campbell, which is par excellence, the, the clan which um, becomes the dominant force in Highland history from about the late 17th century onwards.
1: And these clans, that you have the chieftain and you have the people around him... And the relationship between them is land.
0: Yeah, I mean, what the, the binding, there are two binding forces. First of all, the nature of loyalty and the fact that the, 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 they follow the mythology that all clansmen are, if you like, related to the Chiefly family, which is which is wrong. I mean, that, that there's been much more flux to allow that to happen in terms of blood, in terms of consanguinity. But therefore, the two binding forces are the belief and kindred, because the word clan means children, C L A N N, children, okay? So it, it gives that uh, profound impression of a close relationship. But the practical binding force is the allocation of land. In a subs- subsistence based society of the type we're talking about, to be without land, even a patch, was to court survival, you know, to be really, really in in, 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 in extremis and therefore a whole variety of beliefs and the relationship between land, people and elites builds up. Just to give you one final example, the almost untranslatable term from the Gaelic, d u a t c h a s which really means the fact that the people feel, a variety of meanings, but one important strand is, the people of the clan believe... The elites have a bounden duty to give them protection uh, within the boundaries, if you like, the land boundaries of the clan. And of course, in the later period, when you get expulsion, when you get clearance, that is the greatest possible violation of Duchess, which of course then causes very deep feelings. And, passions.
1: and they equally think they are bound to give their loyalty to the chief when he demands it of them, particularly in military matters.
0: Correct. The clan is essentially a martial society. Yeah.
1: Excellent. Marjorie Harper, um, when, how did the landlords try to sustain their estate in the first stage of clearances, which coincided with all sorts of other things that were happening? The Jacobites had been defeated, uh, industrialization was beginning, and so on. So you tell
2: us. Well, as Tom has said, the, it was never any part of the game plan of the landlords that they should lose tenants from the estate wholesale. What they were trying to do was move them around almost like pieces on a chessboard so that these tenants could engage in buy employments, kelping, commercial fishing manufacturing. Helping
1: is getting a lot of seaweed to produce something that is very useful in the chemical and soap trade.
2: Yes, very, very labour intensive, something that could only be done obviously on the coasts, could only be done in dry weather. And of course that was a a big issue as well. So it involved concentrating a lot of people on the coastline of the estate. So moving them often from the inland straths to the, 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 the shoreline and sheep then filling the inland straths. And Of course, emigration was anathema to the landlords at that stage because they were operating in an age of mercantilism. The idea that the national wealth is vested in having as big a population as possible. So any loss of population um, denotes a, a decrease in national wealth and in estate wealth. So the landlords were trying to maintain people on their estates and they opposed very vehemently the activities of recruiters.
1: Can I be more precise here, because the word landlord is going to achieve a different meaning as we go on. The landlords we're talking about are the cheaps, almost exclusively at this stage. They have lived there yes. as long as their tenants have and they're part of the whole setup.
2: And in the period that we're looking at today, the terminology changes really from <coughs> chieftain to landlord because yes. many of the estates passed out of the hands of the hereditary families, In a lot of them in the period after the Napoleonic Wars, the end of the Napoleonic yes, Wars. But when we still estates we're still early on
1: talking about chieftains who were part of the whole setup. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And um, when we're talking about the landlord saying, sorry, when we're talking about the chieftain saying, we will move you to a different part of your estate. We will push you to the coast. That's quite a big thing to do. <laughs> we will move you 40 or 50 miles from where you and your ancestors have lived for three or four to a couple of hundred years and just go west on the coast and start kelping. How do, what was the reaction to that?
2: Well, not least, it was a big thing given what we've heard about the significance of land and mutual responsibility. So <clears throat> one reaction of the people who were being moved was to use emigration as a bargaining tool and say, if you don't give us what we want, we will emigrate. And of course, that was exactly what the landlords did not want.
1: You mean emigrate out of the country? Uh, Emigrate out of
2: the country to, um, across the Atlantic. So what did they want? They wanted to be left to pursue their traditional way of life unhindered in the way that they had been accustomed to do for centuries. And one of the reasons that emigration was attractive was because on the other side of the Atlantic, they had the opportunity to reconstitute that way of life with replacement chieftains who were the former middle-ranking members of Highland Society, the so-called taxmen, who had been absolutely crucial as military organizers of the clan but who had lost their rationale in the demilitarization after the
1: taxmen sorry is T A C K S M E N they took over the military function of organizing it and, uh, and under the chief making it work so they were very very important they lived on peppercorn rents and were important people
2: yes they liaised between the chieftains who were calling out the clan to war and the clansmen who were the ones who would go to war but of course with demilitarization the um, taxmen were seen as uneconomic middlemen, as you say, because they paid a peppercorn rent and they were seen as as, um, surplus to requirements. How
1: did the taxmen react to this business of uh, sending whole townships to the coast?
2: Well, they were in dire straits themselves because they were suddenly being asked to pay rents at a level that had not been the case before. And some of them engaged in military service. They fought as officers in the Seven Years' War, in the American War of Independence. And as part of their reward for military service, officers could obtain grants of land in the colonies. So they themselves had this very attractive opportunity to reconstitute the old-style society. But they would be the chiefs. and And, of course, because they had the strong traditional links with the clans, they could easily call out clansmen to come and join them. And they also had links very often in ports so they could organise ships to come up to perhaps remote highland locations to embark passengers.
1: Murray Piddock, um, we have the Napoleonic Wars, let, let's say, 1790s, 1815 when they ended. What impact did they have on the economy of the highlands?
3: Well, they had a very significant impact on the economy of of the British Isles as a whole. I mean, prices more than double between the early 1790s and the peak in 1813. And as prices increase, and that that level's maintained for some time uh, at the, slightly lower than 1813, but still higher than much higher than 1790s for some time after the Polonic Wars, that actually puts enormous pressure on what's actually a very highly indebted landlord class, which got limit has got limited rental income and has got a lot of debts typically to meet, and is also uh, is also taking on many more debts from bankers and lenders who are outside. Their immediate group. Why is he taking groups. on all this debt? Well, because there's a there's a long tradition of the of Highland landlords um, being indebted, which goes back before the Union, but also the accelerated move to a, to adapting to British society, becoming part of British elites, meant that they were expected to maintain a lifestyle at a level comparable to uh, English gentry and nobility, which their estates simply couldn't maintain them at. At nearly, the, at, at nearly the same level. So those, that increase in prices in the Napoleonic War was very significant. But the, wars was, the war was significant for another reason, which was that it maintained an artificial market, uh, both in terms of, uh, of herring, for example, but particularly in terms of kelp, because imported barilla wasn't available during the Napoleonic Wars, so that actually the kelp market, which technical advances totally destroyed after the 1820s, was artificially um, uh, highly, uh, uh, artificially valuable for the Highland economy in the first phase of clearance because of the Napoleonic Wars. And that's one of the reasons that allowed landlords to hang on to and to aspire to hang on to their population. But the wars made a cultural impact on Scotland as well. And you know just as the, the Scottish regiments' impact in the Napoleonic Wars uh, it was led to them being welcomed back with, in, with Tartan and Edinburgh in 1815 and ultimately led to the big uh, bonanza around George IV's visit in 1822. The Tartanisation of Scotland has got a lot to do with the Tartanisation of Scotland at war. And so there's a sense of the Highlands becoming culturally central to what Scotland is at the same time as they're in the process of being put under extreme economic pressure and becoming increasingly marginal to the Scottish economy and their own internal economic structures on the verge of collapse. And so, come one more question,
1: and <clears throat> then I'll come to you. so how the fall of Napoleon uh, is that? What, is that when sheep farming is coming in in a big way? Because that's a big change. It,
3: it is coming. It is coming in before the fall of Napoleon. But there's a very, but there's a very much more marked increase that comes in after that, all the way yes. through to the middle of the century. Um, so that's, uh, that's the basic trajectory.
1: Well, what I'm trying to get at, and I suspect you were going mm. to say something about this, Tommy, say what you're going to say, and then say, is, when did we, we move from that, when did we move to, there are, From we must hold on to every person we've got, to there are too many people, we've got to start getting rid of them, or encouraging them to go?
0: Well, that starts with the, the process that Murray's been describing, that is the end of the great age, so-called optimism, but I think there's two or three things we also need to underscore. One is, these small, these, this movement to the coast meant a movement to small holdings or crofts. Now, these were cut to a minimum size to force the people, uh, not to give them full subsistence, but to force the people into fishing and kelping. So it was an incredibly precarious situation, especially if there was employment sundered, as they did do after 1815. The second thing, which we haven't talked about so far, but is the looming spectre behind a lot of this, is the rise in population, um, which, of course, gets faster over time. Uh, Marjorie's talked about the limitations of emigration, and the irony is that population, to a large extent, despite the movements that are going on, remained anchored to the land, and that's very, very, very important. The third thing is the wars lead to landowners harvesting men for the regiments. Then the unfortunate thing in terms of what's going to happen later in terms of social tension is land is often given, to quote from a document in the Lord of Macdonald archives in Sky, land is often given in return for sons. Now, you can imagine if that bond was betrayed, which was a bond of blood through eviction, you can imagine the consequences.
1: Harvesting sons is a hell of a phrase, isn't it? Marjorie Harper, um, some of the events at the time were starting to try to encourage people to leave the highlands or get rid of them, whichever phrase you want to use. And there were some infamous moments here. We can't skate over those. Can you give us some examples?
2: Well, to some extent, whether incidents became notorious or not, it was fortuitous. It depended on whether they were witnessed so um, for example, jumping ahead to the 1850s, in 1853, the clearance of the townships of Bororeg and Sushnish in Skye. We might not have known about that clearance if there hadn't been a geologist, Sir Archibald Geeky, working up in the hills, and he witnessed and heard the wailing of the people as they were evicted and watched them t- um, take their last leave of the Minister of Kilbride. Going back to... And the how many num- what
1: numbers were involved? I think it was
2: 33 families, yeah. though multiplied by the number of people uh, per family. If you go back to the earlier period, one of the most notorious names in the history of the Highland Clearances is that of Patrick Seller. And he was the, the, the factor for the, the Duke of Sutherland, but he also was a sheep farmer in his own right. And in 18, as a result of an action he took in 1814, he was brought to trial for... Uh, arson and culpable homicide in other words manslaughter because it was common at that stage to use fire after people had been evicted destroy the the building so that people it could not be reoccupied and as a result of one of the actions of seller up in Strathnaver in Sutherland um, a, a, an elderly woman died and he was brought to trial he was actually acquitted and of course that's been a, um, a, a running sore in that part of Scotland ever since.
1: There must have been light and shade. Some of the chiefs must have said, we don't want to do this. And some of the, those who were evicted said, we're not going to put up with this. So what happened there? Well,
2: there, many of the recorded instances of clearance, the reason we know about them is because there was resistance. Um, another example would be, again, from the East Coast, place called Greenyards near Boner Bridge in 1854, when eviction orders were served on... The, the tenants. They were resisted. The the sheriff officers were deforced. In other words, they were their papers were burnt, they were stripped naked and they were sent packing. They returned with 30 constables, faced a crowd of 300, mainly women, and there was a skirmish and the, there, was, there were a number of injuries to the protesters. So we, we know about some of the, the instances of resistance. We also know about them because of retrospective Writings by people like Alexander Mackenzie, whose History of the Highland Clearances, published in 1883, rapidly went into several editions. He spoke about, uh, for example, John Gordon of Clooney, a laird of a a kelping estate in um, South Euston and Barra. Uh, He talked about the transporting season when people were dragged down to the ships to be sent to Canada. And we also know about them from the other side, from the comments of Canadian immigration agents and commentators um, who had to pick up these people literally at the other end and forward them to their ultimate destinations.
1: And there's more about it, especially on the Sutherland estate. Uh, um, Murray Piddock, as I understand it, the physical hardship was bad enough, but let's introduce this idea of the sense of betrayal, mm. which preys apart right through and is still there, as I understand it, from reading what you three have written. Um, how did it manifest itself in its, early, in its early days, the idea of sense of betrayal?
3: Well I, I think actually one of the, the three things I'd say about about the sense of betrayal um is that it was as always throughout the 19th century imperfectly realized and there is confusion and there is resentment and there is guilt some of the confusion comes from uh the the uh, very assumption or belief that of Duchas that Tom has uh, brought forward which was central the idea that there is that there is a common purpose and a common a common right of some kind in the land and also there is a protector who is the landlord and that concept seems to have survived albeit imperfectly the many uh, some of the changes uh, of landlord and indeed some of the treatment of tenants by native landlords so people actually didn't have the same the, the full and precise sense in every case that they sometimes did that landlord was was Absolutely betraying them and needed to be resisted. There was resistance, and that goes right back to the late 18th century, the 1770s and 80s, right on to something with, uh, the the Battle of the Brays and the and the disturbances in Lewis and Lewis and Skye in the 1880s and 1890s. But it is much more piecemeal than in, in for example, Ireland. Uh, although the Irish, when the the Highland and Irish land leagues get together, there's the use of the Irish rent strike tactic in the 1880s. But it, but in Ireland, but it, unlike Ireland, the landlord is not seen as an alien. The landlord is actually one of us, and that's how Duchas works, and that's what makes the which limits the scope for resentment. But the last thing I say is guilt, and the evidence, and maybe there's uh, there's more recent research in this. but The evidence really suggests that even Economic emigrants from uh, Ireland in North America say that they were cleared, but that Scottish uh, descendants of Scottish emigrants who were cleared say that they were vol- they left voluntarily, and that is the 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 guilt of Presbyterianism. I would say which which does survive even the the move to the Free Church in the after the eighteen forties, where people believe somehow and sometimes told that they it's for their sins. That they've been so unfortunate, and this collective punishment to their township, to their cro- to their crafts, this collective punishment to themselves is something that somehow has been brought upon them by their by their own uh, their own um, shortfall and sinfulness, and that is critical in actually itself limiting the scope for resentment and increasing the level of confusion, which is already there through the assumptions underpinning. Do
1: you want to... Would you like to say a few things about betrayal, Tom, before I go on to the next point?
3: Um, Well, ironically enough, um,
0: the the picture that Murray has drawn is one of complexity, and that's the case. The curiosity is the sense of betrayal, either exaggerated or real, is actually more important post-clearance. That is, it's the descendants. And this goes on to the present day. We were just talking before we came in, Melvin the um, the great concerted campaign to tear down the monument to the first Duke of Sutherland um, uh, outside Golsby, known locally as the Manny, a uh, hundred foot high. Um, and th- that uh, that was left, if you like, innocent of any assault for most of the period. But from about the 1960s, 1970s, um, the clearances seemed to have become a much more important aspect, not simply of Scottish history, but has become almost a kind of Scottish cultural phenomenon which has actually got political implications as well since the rise of nationalism in the later part of the 20th century. This is not to say that the people were not aggrieved, um, but because of the fact of the centuries-old connection to the landed or the clan elites... were almost disorientated. It was very difficult for them to respond collectively in terms of a, if you like, a regional assault. So most of the protests of the later uh, to mid-19th century, apart from the great final one, the so-called Crofters' War of the 1880s, um, were fragmentary and usually insubstantial and faded away as soon as the police or the army arrived.
3: Yeah, I mean, I I agree very much with what Tom says. I think one of the but I think one of the interesting one of the cusps is actually uh, a British cusp to the clearance uh, to the clearance issue, and that is that the uh, the Napier Commission built on the. Uh, the view of Celtic landhold in Celtic landholding advanced in Skeen's Celtic Scotland of 1879. So the, when the Napier Commission sat and reported in 1884-5, in the, what led to the to the to the Crofting Act of 1886 and the preservation of existing remaining crofters' rights, they did so on the basis and Gladstone and Parliament supported this. They did so on the basis of really a, a slightly mythologised view. Of, of immemorial rights to, to landholding, which themselves had been the consequence of relatively recent historical developments. And so that mythology, which became enshrined in the expectations surrounding the crofting, uh, the crofting Commission and its associated bodies, that mythology actually underpinned the way the clearances then presented themselves in the cultural memory of Scotland in the 20th century.
0: I think it's fascinating that... The um the the if you like, the polemical literature on clearance really only starts in a systematic way around about the eighteen seventies, eighteen eighties. After
1: the potato famine?
0: Yes. And the it's potato ab- is, Sorry to interrupt. I was you just on, going to say is
1: that the big bridge? The big I'll,
0: I'll certainly talk about that just in a in a second, uh, Melbourne. Um the the point I was going to make uh, was that um we should the the exaggeration thing is very important because certainly in terms of any work I've done in this The vast majority of the people left the Highlands because of difficulties of circumstance and opportunities elsewhere, not because of eviction, Okay, Um, But from about the 1850s, 1860s onwards, in Britain as a whole, anti-landlordism becomes a popular movement, especially in the Liberal Party, but among other radical groups. And we've got to bear that in mind when we judge how the clearances came to become if you like, representative, even in the writings of Karl Marx, of the abuse, the gross abuse of proprietorial power. But as you indicate or imply just a few seconds ago, in my view at least, one of the great divides in Highland history is the is the onset of the potato blight in 1846-7, which, unlike Ireland, endured for a further eight or nine years. It was a longer period, and it's the same disease for festans which kills, for most of the Highlands, and especially the Western Highlands and Islands, this main subsistence um, source of the people. And, of course, um, that potentially creates a massive tragedy of mortality, which did not happen. It happened terribly and tragically in Ireland. But in in, in Scotland, the people were saved by a combination of massive charitable intervention. Ironically enough, in the first two years of the disaster... The intervention of landlords, British British officials talked about the fact that there was a steep contrast, um, a stark contrast between the misbehaviour of Irish landowners during the Irish famine, and at least in the first two years of the Highland famine, the relief organisations mounted mounted by landowners, but because of the because of the continued threat to life, because rentals had more or less ceased to be paid. And because of the ideological fact that the potato famine seemed to crystallise the fact that the crofting system was dead and the people had to be moved. And that then begins the the era that uh, Marjorie talked about earlier, the era of what some critics called compulsory emigration, the bleak choice between eviction or eviction plus cancellation of arrears and transportation across the seas, mainly to Canada, but laterally also to to Australia. Um, and uh, that's therefore the age of expulsion, no longer the age of resettlement or relocation.
1: Can I ask you to develop that, Marjorie, um, about the emigration, the, the bleak choice that uh, Thomas pointed out people were given an <coughs> and how it worked in practice?
2: Well... We've, as Tom says, we've, we've moved, the, there was a move from so we're talking emig- about the second half, the second second half of the, nine, the, the, yes. the, or from the end of the Napoleonic Wars onwards, yeah. because the first laird to actively assist emigration was Maclean of Col in 1825, when he dipped into his own pocket to pay for the relocation of all but 50 of his tenants from the island of Rum to Cape Breton, and then he leased the island to a single sheep farmer. So what you had. For on the whole... In, that's across Canada. That's on the, the eastern seaboard right, yeah. of, of, of Canada. <clears throat> what you had for most of the emigration of the, the 19th century was landlords um, paying or cutting their losses by paying for their tenants to um, emigrate. Tom's mentioned Australia. Australia came into the picture in a very uh, prominent way In the late 1830s, and again in the 1850s, Um, the 1850s is probably the most significant in in terms of the the famine because a body called the Highland and Island Emigration Society was set up, a kind of quasi-government organisation, and it assisted around 5,000 emigrants to go, particularly from Skye, out to Australia. And what the government had in mind there was to ensure there was replacement pastoral workforce for. Um, the parts of Australia from which people had fled to the gold fields because gold had just been discovered in New South Wales and Victoria. But slightly earlier than that, back in the 1830s, the Australia was never going to be able to compete on a level playing field unless there was some sort of subsidy. And that dates from the beginnings of free settlement right up until the end of the £10 passage in the 1970s. And a scheme called the Bounty Emigration Scheme was introduced where people who were deemed to be eligible in various ways were given varying degrees of assistance to get out to Australia. And the extension of that scheme to Scotland came at a particularly fortuitous time for the Highlands because there had been an initial outbreak of potato potato famine in um, the middle of the 1830s so that bounty scheme kicked in at the appropriate time there and uh, numbers were sent uh, were assisted out to New South Wales.
1: Canada was the was a preferred place wasn't it and and blocks of people went to Canada we're told still in parts of Canada that Gaelic is spoken and uh, bagpipes are played and uh, the full Highland uh, dress
2: uh, ceremonial goes on. Canada was the preferred place for a number of reasons partly because there was already a nucleus a strong nucleus of highland settlement there so people felt that they were going to an area that was familiar but also from the point of view of those who were sponsoring the emigrants it was the nearest and the cheapest place to reach but it also has a significance in terms of the historiography Mm. that we've just been looking at we we were thinking about the mythologization of the the clearances and part of that as as Murray was Mm. saying was going back to the, the Napier commission and the way that Witnesses to the Napier Commission were tutored in giving evidence in a very articulate way. Each each township was allowed to elect two delegates to give evidence um, orally, or in written, and also as, as well as those who gave written evidence. And that again links with uh, with something Murray was saying about the um, about religion, because there was a religious revival in the Highlands in the middle of the nineteenth century. These guys who were doing the speaking to the Napier Commission had often cut their teeth as lay preachers so they knew how to speak. So the, the, the historiography of um, victimhood and um, betrayal and deprivation goes back, as we said, to the 1870s and carries on.
1: Sheep farming cleared great tracts of Scotland. Then we, <clears throat> then we come to deer farming, we it, which at one stage claimed a million acres of Scottish land. Can you say something about that, Murray?
3: Yeah, well, I, uh, uh, one of the interesting things is that is that deer um, uh, is the first place, the first sweet spot, if you like, where the cultural and economic drivers for of Highlanders meet. Prince Albert loves, uh, he's not very really good at shooting them, but he loves shooting at deer, um, and uh, when Balmoral is first of all leased in 1848 and then bought in 1852, and a, a period which is encapsulated, I guess, in uh, Lancer's um, iconic Monarch of the Glen painting, which the National Galleries of Scotland have just acquired, painted in 1851, uh, deer becomes really socially and prestigious. What impact? what impact does it have? Uh, well, it has. It, it, at that stage, it's a, it's an impact which is. Which is relatively low key, but as the price for wool begins to fall, and by one thousand nine hundred and nineteen, uh, which was after peak deer, Maxwell of Pollock suggests you can get three times as much rental for land under deer as land under sheep, then deer, be- deer forest becomes massively expanded, becomes a big e- economic impact it doesn 't employ people in particularly large numbers, uh, and it is a it is a landlord friendly use of land. Tom, in your note, you,
1: you talk about, you allude two or three times to what's happening in the lowlands. Was there any notion about why this uh, increasing uh, um, affection for, as well as um, uh, interest in the highlands, was taking place among the English uh, liberal establishment and the upper classes?
0: I know that. I mean, the, the, um, the experience of the people who lost land in the lowlands was completely forgotten and marginalised. Um, If there was attention given to the lowland experience, it was because of the extraordinary capacities of agrarian capitalism. I mean, Scotland became a centre of visitor tourism um, on the part of experts from Europe and North America to see how a small country with tough land had managed to achieve this excellence in agronomy. And and so the actual experience of the people who had existed on the land in not dissimilar circumstances, though, of course, better off, than in the Highlands, was completely forgotten. The excavation of their experience has been the role of modern historians. Um, You could argue that the attention given to the Highlands, dare I say it, quote, the glamour of the clearances, the attention given to the Highlands in film, in fiction, in polemical historical writings uh, and the rest, and feeding in, if you like, to the politics of land reform in the current century, has further meant the um, marginalisation and the amnesia surrounding the lowland rural experience, including the border experience and not simply that of the central lowlands and the eastern coastal strip. And, of course, one of the deep ironies, Melvin, is that that is where the vast majority of the Scottish population lived.
1: Um, Marjorie... (laughs) <laughs> Excuse me. Major, what moves have there been towards land reform? Or were there towards land reform? We're
2: talking in the, yeah, 19th, the late 19th in century. In the late 19th century. Well, I think there was a confluence of circumstances from about 1870 that turned the spotlight on the importance of land reform. And of course, there'd been a, a cumulative public awareness of the, uh, the clearances and the perceived sense of injustice as the decades had had gone on. But if you want a a, a one-liner, I think the key factor was what the... Crofters got the vote under the 1884 Reform Act, but there were a whole lot of other circumstances that contributed to uh, the, the land reform actually happening as a result of the Napier Commission and the 1886 Act that followed, including an economic downturn after a period of relative recovery. So hopes had been raised and then dashed. Um, an interest in the highlands in other parts of Scotland, Federation of Celtic Societies, uh, formed as a sort of loose federation to promote um, the interests of the, the, the highlands. The role of people like John Murdoch um, and, and Alexander Mackenzie, author of History of the Highland Clearances, editor of the Celtic magazine, in using their newspapers as platforms for publicising the Highland grievances, and these men also going around and tutoring the uh, people in giving evidence to the Napier Commission, and much else.
3: Monia, would you come in, and then Tom? Uh, To to take up Tom and and Marjorie's points, I think we we have to see these things very much in the round. I mean, the... the, uh, Disappointment following the, the, uh, the uh, crofting Commission legislation in 1886 is partly due to the, this being a period of major agricultural depression, which also affects land, o- uh, land ownership and, uh, in Ireland and also affects the development, the economic development in England at the same time. It is a major period of agricultural depression. But I think we've also got to be, I mean, while uh, uh, agreeing very much with Tom about the importance of the lowland clearances, we also have to be aware that the population shift in, Sco- in Scotland how it was enormous between the early modern period and now. So in 1755, to take Webster's figures, which are still largely accepted, 51% of the population lived north of the Tay. And you're really talking about talking about a third of the population living in the highlands, depending on how you want to define the exact boundary of the highlands. And that falls to a low of round about, uh, round about 4%. Uh, at, its ba- at its baseline in the 20th century. So although the actual numbers of people are relatively stable, there is a major demographic shift from the Highlands being centrally important to the national life of Scotland in terms of population and institutions to being marginal, and that's one of the things that really drives the Highland clearances in popular memory. Tom, you
0: want to come Yeah, in? I was just going to say that um, there's a tremendous irony about... Um, the Deer Forest development, and then into the Crofters' War and finally the, if you like, the sympathetic legislation of the Crofters' Holding Act, and known until quite recently as the Magna Carta of the Highland people. And, and, and that is this, that partly because men of influence from government were now visiting the Highlands regularly, they saw the extent of destitution, which was a, an element in the political decisions made in 1886 by Gladstone's government, but the other thing is, is, is as well, it gave, it gave further fuel to the radical position, to the radical camp, that here was this region which had been despoiled during the high point of agrarian sheep capitalism, which was now being used by, for leisure, for leisure purposes by the wealthy. Um, it was no coincidence that in the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, that you're beginning to see the swelling chorus of support and criticism, uh, support um, uh, 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 and um, uh, a sense of the Highland people had had a very hard time. It's time to do something about it.
1: Um, the Highlander is on the conscience of all Scots.
0: Correct, and still is to this day. Yes,
1: that was in 1953, wasn't it, in Commons?
0: Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, the, the, uh, the, the position... Um, that that kind of that kind of, of, of factor is not only helped to continue to keep the, cre- the clearance issue in the forefront, but actually the word clearance has become almost a, a national term for any economic tragedy. Deindustrialisation was described as a new clearance. Marjorie.
2: The comment was made by Willie Ross when Willie he was Ross. Secretary of State for Scotland yeah. introducing into the Westminster Parliament in 1965 the bill that led to the creation of the Highlands and Islands Development Board and he said for 200 years the Highlander has been the man on Scotland's conscience.
1: Thank you very much, Sir Tom Devine, Murray Piddick and Marjorie Harper. Next week we'll be discussing St Augustine's Confessions, his account of his conversion to Christianity. Thank you very much for listening
2: and the in our time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from melvin and his guests
1: so what did we miss out
3: well, well i think we i think there are uh, a couple of uh, a couple of things i'd say we missed out uh, the echoes not just the echoes but the the memory of the clearances as enshrined in the legislation of the scottish parliament the land reform bill the two major land reform bills i think the first 2003 the second 2017 2016-17, and the the establishment of the Scottish Land Commission in 2017, which is actually the direct descendant, ultimately, of uh, the of the Crofting Commission 1886. So the continuity, the sense of parliamentary and legislative continuity, which is also parallels the uh, the uh, period of uh, cultural memorialization. And the second is, I guess, the the uh, literary or imaginative response to. The clearances, um, which we might we might start with um, Scott's Guy Mannering and the clearances, of the, his oblique reference to the clearances in the clearance of the of the gypsies, and take that through the Canadian boat song in Blackwood's Magazine in 1829, through the uh, through the actual development of a nostalgic, sentimentally Jacobitical view. Of, of the Highlands as a place of mystique and loss, largely cultivated by Highland emigres um, in British cities, rather than those who've gone abroad, and usually those in the professional classes, um, or even or even uh, wealthier than that in the 18th uh, in the late uh, mid and late 19th century, and then the 20th century response from you know Neil Gunn's great. Uh, Novels of the clearances, *Butcher's Broom* in 1934, and *The Silver Darlings*. The success of the fishy industry overcoming the clearances, through the uh, recapitulation of the diasporic experience in Ian Crichton-Smith's collection *Exiles*, and of course John McGrath's pivotal for the modern for modern, uh, you'd say nationalism, but actually John McGrath's *The Sheva at *The Stag*, and *The Black Black Oil*, premiered for the uh, Aberdeen Arts Centre in 1973, was very much. A non-nationalist text, even though that was part of the, the period of the first SNP surge, it actually stood apart from the SNP and explicitly rejected a nationalist reading. It was effectively a marxist reading of the exploitation and the continuing exploitation, hence the black-black oil of the Highlands and northern Scotland. But it stood in that imaginative uh, uh, pantheon, which Thomas alluded to in the sense of the use of clearance as a metaphor for anything that happens to go wrong in uh, industrial, uh, uh, commercial policy or social deprivation. It is one of the classic emotive words that describes the Scottish experience, and that is how it is par excellence in that very period play of John McGrath's. I'm sure Which of course people. was um,
0: to a large extent based on um, if you like the Preblean
3: motif. It was it was, mm. it was as much Preble as, as Watkins was Watkins Culloden was yeah. Preble's Culloden. So yeah. there's a a descent
0: yeah. from Mackenzie in the eighteen eighties through Preble and his imitators and then on to the these kind of semi fictive works of the type you've described. And there's the Watkins film on Culloden, which caused a big stir. Didn't yes.
1: it? Enormous stir. I think there's...
0: it was a fantastic work of um, filmmaking uh, innovation. Was, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: But what did you think of it as a piece
0: of? Yeah, I mean, I, I thought, um, especially the way it seemed to capture the those who are nameless. That is the. The, the front line um, uh, of the uh, clan regiments right down to the lower ranks. I thought that was brilliant. It's not true, though, Tom. Yeah, I know, but it was, br- <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was brilliantly done in the, in, in the sense that, you know, mythology and exaggeration are always more interesting and technicolour than, than, um, than real complex history. that was made of black and white. But there's one, other aspect, <laughs> uh, there's one other aspect I want to pick up in relation to uh, what Murray Pitwick has just said.
3: <laughs> I and guess, sorry. No,
0: no, no <laughs> um, I'm, I'm not going to criticise you. Um, um, until later. Uh, no, 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 no the, the, point I'm, the point I'm making is to get across to listeners, you know, the potency of this, and I think the potency especially among uh, the, the, the Scottish people and especially among the Scots descendants in the USA where, of course, in the last 20 to 30 to 40 years, there's been a huge expansion of tartanry, Highlandism, not least propelled by the recent um, television series uh, from the uh, Diana Gabaldon novels, which uh, whose name I have forgotten. Outlander. Outlander, Outlander. right. Now, turn... Sorry, I was just going to say, the, 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 there, is a, there is a belief in mon- many of those communities, whether, whether or not they came from industrial lowland Scotland or not, that their, their epic experience across the Atlantic has been triggered by the clearances. Yeah. I'll just give you one example of this. Um, a lady, fifth-generation Texan lady, asks an Edinburgh ge- genealogy company to research her family. She finds out that instead of coming from a cleared township in Skye, she comes from the industrial town of Motherwell, my own place of birth. She refuses to pay the genealogy company for the <laughs> wrong information. So.
2: In, I, mean, I could pick up on that as well. With the, I would um, fully endorse the, the idea of potency. And there's an anthropologist, Paul Basu, who has written a book called Highland Homecomings, which involved interviewing many people from across the Atlantic and further afield who felt they had Scottish ancestry and what they did was be very selective in their choice of Scottish ancestry so that if the nearest ancestor was somebody from the urban industrial lowlands, they were not um, regarded. They were, they were set aside in favour of the supposedly cleared Highlander who came from several generations earlier and probably hadn't been cleared anyway. The, 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 yeah.
0: the thing is, Melvin, this is now actually crossed into Europe. There are um, groups of people from Moscow to Stockholm who play Highlanders who dress up in military uh, tartanry. And uh, the, one of my former students um, has done a, written a doctoral thesis, which is, now, which is now a book on this topic. And I remember when we considered who to supervise this gentleman, whether we should naturally need a psychologist, as well as an historian, well, ha- as part of the team. I
3: have to say, I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't take such a negative view as you talk, because Highlandism <laughs> has actually been part of Scottish identity and Scottish self-representation back to... Indeed, beyond the 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 eighteenth or nineteenth mm. centuries, back into the seventeenth, and it's the defeat of Jacobite. I know this is
0: one of your ide but... <laughs> Murray.
3: No, it's it's not an ide <laughs> fixe. There's it a, is. there's a, there is a great deal of there's a great deal of evidence supporting it, Tom. <laughs> Tom. Not least the uniforming of all Jacobite armies in tartan, irrespective of place of origin.
1: Well, just to bring us <laughs>
3: close,
1: I'm, I'm a tiny, tiny, almost insignificant, but just <laughs> before
3: you you. you
1: Depart <laughs> to blow my <laughs> coffee, whichever it is. And that, I, I go to Edinburgh Festival, it was one festival, it was, oh goodness knows, 10 years ago. And um, for one reason, they we were mixed up in this, that, and the other, make a film. And they brought over an enormous number of American students, uh, not, I'm talking sixty, seventy, playing the pipes and the drums, oh. they're going to march. And this chap, this American fellow, uh, before they marched, it was wonderful. The told them the Scottishists this was the most important thing they were ever going to do in their lives, and terrifying <laughs> the light of it. I thought they couldn't blow into the book. and it was enormous. It, they meant so much, and they marched down Princess Street, and that was terrific. Actually,
0: was part of that identity, melon Yeah,
2: yeah. You, you were asking about what's been missed out. I think one of the other things that we maybe missed out was the the ongoing legacy in terms of hemorrhage. Yeah. And if you look at say the 1920s, there was a almost um, a rerun or potential for a rerun of post-Napoleonic mm. crisis, particularly in the the Outer Hebrides. And but the sense of, of emigration and depart well, not necessarily emigration, m- moving out of the Highlands as something that was uh, put upon the Highlanders. The, the Highlanders being perceived as passive rather than active agents yeah. in um, their own history. I think is something that lingered mm. until. Well, thank you very we much. So. fascinating. In Our Time with Melvin Bragg is produced by Simon Tillotson. Hello, I'm Viv Jones, and I wanted to tell you about the Civilisations podcast. Each week, we delve deeper into the ideas and stories raised in the Civilisations TV series, which is going out now on BBC2 and up on iPlayer. And this week, we have a behind-the-scenes interview with presenter Mary Beard. That's the Civilisations podcast, and you can find it wherever you found this. Thanks.